if you're normal, and I recognize that not all of you are, okay? If you're normal, you will spend about 33%, one third of your life unconscious. Have you ever thought about how weird that is? That the average person sleeps about eight hours of every single day. That works out, amen. Some of you guys are like, eight hours, I wish. The average person, though, will sleep about eight hours every day. That takes up 33% of your day. And so by extension, 33% of your entire life will actually be spent unconscious. If I told you that you were going to spend 33% of your life in a coma, for instance, you would say, wow, that's terrible. I can't even imagine spending that much of my life in that situation. If I said you were going to spend a third of your life in jail, you would say, that's terrible. What can I do? I'll avoid that fate at all costs. And yet every single one of us spends about one third of our entire life asleep. Now, some of you guys are here this morning. You're sitting in a dark theater you're in a comfy chair, and you're like, hey, I'm about to take that 33% up to 37% this Sunday, brother. That's okay. I'm glad you're here. You'll soak it in by osmosis. It's not a big deal. I was uh, looking at some research that was done by Stats Canada, and they basically followed people around, or they had them self-report what the average day looked like for them. And they kind of marked out how much time we spend each day doing the typical tasks that we encounter in our daily routine. Their research honestly was fascinating and a little sad. What they discovered is that you spend, like we said, about 33% of your day asleep. You spend about 33% of your day working. So right there, two-thirds of your entire life is spent either at a desk or in your bed. That's it. It goes on. Yeah, some of you guys are saying, that's not too bad. You spend about 4% of your day commuting back and forth to work. The average commute is about 30 minutes one way. So an hour round trip, that's 4% of your day you spend in the car yelling at other drivers on Deerfoot. You spend about 5% of your day eating. Now, that's not so bad. I, I'm at least double that. I'm going to be real honest with you guys. I probably spend 10% of my day eating, but the average person spends 5%. You spend 4% of the typical day shopping. Now, some of you guys are like, no way. I don't spend that much shopping, but that includes things like groceries and gas, which you end up getting multiple times a week. So you spend 4% of your day shopping. Uh, they found out that if you have children, on average, you'll spend 8% of your day directly supervising or caring for your children. And then the last thing, and this blows my mind, the last thing they discovered is that the average person spends 8%, that is two hours of every single day online or looking at social media. When you add up all those numbers, what you find out is that 95% of your day is spent in these seven tasks that you're really in a routine day after day after day, whether you realize it or not. That extra 5%, that's really not a lot of time for new and different and exciting adventures in your life. No wonder you feel like you're in a routine. No wonder we call it the daily grind, where day after day after day, it seems like everything is just the same. We're incredibly busy. Our schedules our clocks are full of things to do, but I think there's a real fear among us that although we're busy, we're not actually accomplishing very much. 
There's a fear in my heart that although my schedule is full from Monday to Sunday, that at the end of the day, I'm missing out on what's really important in life. I'm personally afraid that I'm staying active, but I'm missing what's most important, that I'm running out the clock, that life is passing me by, that I'm just doing time each and every day. At Connect, we believe that you were created for more than that. You were created for more than just a mundane routine. You were actually designed to live something we call the overflowing life, a life of meaning and purpose, of value, excitement, adventure, and goals. You were created for more than what you've settled for. Now, last week, we started this series, Doing Time, where we unpacked these things. We began to talk about what is the overflowing life? How do I find meaning amidst the routine? How do I discover purpose? Like, what on earth am I here for? And last week, I challenged you to come up with your own reasons. What do you think you were put here on earth for? Do you believe you're a total random accident? Do you think you were put here to be a good dad or a wonderful wife? Do you think you were put here to make the world a better place? We left last week up to you and we said, you decide what it is that you think you exist for. But we want to take you to what we think the scripture says is true about every single one of us. The reason that we have life, the place that we find purpose on a daily basis, we kind of want to share that with you because it transformed us. It changed my life, and I genuinely believe it has the power to change yours as well. In fact, if you weren't here last week, I'll encourage you to jump on our website. It's connectcalgary.ca. Check out that message from last week. It's about 30 minutes, which is exactly the length of the average commute. So while you're spending 4% of your day commuting back and forth, give that a listen. I think it'll help you to understand why we believe purpose is the antidote to a mundane or a routine life. So we talk about the overflowing life here. If you come here very much, you're going to hear that quite a bit because we think it's important. We believe you are actually put here on earth for four things. We want you to experience four things every single day in your life. And we believe if you can experience all four of these things, not just one or two, not just three, but if you can get all four of them present in your life, then you will discover the meaning, the purpose, the beauty, the hope that you've always sought after in your life. These are the four things. They're on the screen here. We believe every one of us were created to know God. We believe every one of us were created to find freedom. We believe every one of us were created to discover our purpose in the world. And we believe every single one of us were put here to make a difference. If you can do those four things, I promise you, you will have life overflowing, life that has meaning and purpose and goals. I promise you, it will change the way that you look at your daily routine if you can take part in these four things. Now, uh, this morning, we're actually going to start with knowing God. Because I believe it is possible for each of us to know God. We're going to start with the most controversial one right off the bat. The second I say it's possible for you to know God, for some of you, the tension level just ratchets up already, just the mention of it. And that's because you've been taught that in polite company, you don't talk about money, politics, or beliefs in God. You just stay away from them altogether. And maybe in your experience, those conversations haven't always gone so well at work or at the Thanksgiving dinner table, you know, when the subject of God and knowing him came up, no matter where you fall on that particular issue, you may not have always had the best experiences with it. 
And the reason for that is because although the word God is only three letters long, it is the most loaded word in the human language. When we say God, every single one of us brings to that word all of our questions, all of our fears, everything we've ever heard from our parents and our friends and the media and history textbooks. It's like that tiny little word gets loaded with all of this extra meaning and weight and charge behind it. We start to ask questions when people talk about God. We say, wait a sec, how do you even know anything about God? I mean, like basic questions. Is there only one God or are there many gods? Is God loving or is God angry? Does God command us to feed the poor or to strap on suicide vests? Like what God are you talking about, Dan, when you say it's possible for me to know him? Because all of us come with these preconceived ideas about who God is and and what he's like. You know, a Jew is going to have a very different conception of who God is than a Jedi. Did you know Jediism is an actual religion? Check it out. It's pretty interesting. And a Baptist is going to have a really different conception of God than a Buddhist will, right? So we've got all of these differing ideas that are competing about what God is like and what his fundamental nature is and and all of these different things. We're shaped by our beliefs and our backgrounds. Here's what I want you to understand. Nobody approaches the discussion about God from a neutral perspective. Nobody does. We all bring our history and our doubts and our questions and our fears into that conversation. So when I start talking about knowing God, there's a lot of background noise that's going on in your mind. Your experiences in church, your experiences with religious people at work, with your family members who told you that there is no God. There is a lot happening just at the mention of those three little words. Some of you guys come from a a slightly more agnostic bent, you know? You're like, wait a sec, wait a sec. You can't even know what you're talking about, Dan. I mean, you're talking about knowing God, but which God are you mentioning here? You're talking about Yahweh? Talking about Allah? You talking about Vishnu? The flying spaghetti monster? Like, which God are you even discussing here when you say it's possible to know God? Some of you are more scientific, and you're like, come on, this is silly anyway. A belief in God is kind of antiquated. There was a time in history when people needed to believe in God, but now we can pretty much explain everything. So why do we even need to have these conversations about God? And so in the middle of all of this crowded sea of personal beliefs, and scientific discoveries, and cultural traditions about who or what God is, how can I stand up here in front of you and say it is possible for you to know God? Well, I think to answer that question, to figure out how we can know God and why I really do believe it's possible, I want to take you to a conversation that Jesus had with his earliest followers in the Bible. And in this conversation, Jesus says something so profound, it became a game changer. Like literally, it flipped the script on conversations about God. It's no exaggeration for me to say that this conversation, these few sentences that Jesus spoke 2,000 years ago, changed the course of human history because people began to believe what he was saying is actually true. 
So we're going to look at John chapter number 14. We've got the verses here on the screen, so you can follow along there if you like. John chapter number 14. And let me set the stage for you, okay, what's going on here. Jesus and his 12 disciples are having what's called the Last Supper. You've seen those pictures where they're all gathered around a table, they're eating lamb, they're drinking wine and breaking bread together, and they call it the Last Supper because this actually is the final meal that Jesus is going to spend with these guys on earth. He's been traveling around and teaching people about God at this point for about three and a half years, and he's been predicting all along, guys, the things that we're saying, the things that we're doing, they're going to change the world. And not always in good ways. People are not going to love everything we're saying and doing. In fact, at some point during that three-year, three-and-a-half-year period, he begins to predict his own death. And the disciples are always like, no, Jesus, 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 we would never let that happen to you. Don't worry about it. You'll be totally fine. You're going to die an old man in some Israeli retirement home. We got you. Don't worry about it. And yet Jesus knows that this is his last night. He knows what's coming. And so he's about to turn the entire enterprise over to these 12 men. He's going to leave it in their hands. And so he's giving them the final instructions they need in order to carry on his ministry after he's gone. So in John chapter number 14, in the middle of this really awkward dinner conversation where Jesus is talking about leaving the disciples, perhaps even dying, he says to them in verse 1, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. Then he says in verse four, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said, no, we don't know, Lord. We have no idea where you're going. So how could we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. He says, if you had really known me, you would have known who my Father is. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. Then Philip said, Lord, 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 just show us the Father and we will be satisfied. We're gonna continue this conversation here in just a sec, but I wanna pause for a moment because the truth is I find a great deal of comfort in this interaction between Jesus and his disciples. I really do. I love how honest the disciples are here. Jesus is talking to them and their response is like, we don't have a clue what you mean right now. The one thing the disciples do not sound like is confident. They are not certain at all of what Jesus is saying. And so they, they say to him things like, no, we don't know, Lord. We have no idea where you're going. How could we possibly know the way? They are completely, um, they're, they're clueless. They just don't understand the things that Jesus is saying. I find a great deal of comfort in that because to be perfectly honest with you, a lot of times I don't understand everything Jesus says. I don't understand everything that's written in the Bible. I hope you find some comfort in that fact as well. Because you may have come in here and sat down, this might be your first time in church or your first time in a very long time, and you sat down thinking that you're sitting amongst a bunch of people who believe they have it all figured out. 
You believe that we must, you know, have certainty in our life. We must not deal with the same questions and doubts and fears that you deal with every single day because we go to church regularly and we pray and we wouldn't be doing those things if we had the same sorts of fears and questions that you do. You think that the people around you must have had their doubt or their faith turn into certainty. But can I tell you that that is completely untrue. You're surrounded by people many of whom are believers who are trying to figure it out. We're reading the words of Jesus. We're seeing what the Bible says, and we're trying to understand what it means. We read something and we respond like the disciples. We're like, no, I don't know what that means. God help me to understand. I'm trying to make sense out of it here, but I'm not sure how I can know you or know what you're saying. Here's the truth. I'm a pastor. I have multiple college degrees in the Bible. Okay? I'm a professional Christian. I get paid to teach people how to follow Jesus, and I'll be the very first one to admit to you how much I don't actually know. But the good news is, guys, you don't have to have all of the answers in order to know God. You don't have to overcome all of your doubts and questions and fears in order to know him. You don't have to answer every objection that your university professor raised. You don't have to come to terms with everything the Bible says and be able to explain why God always says things and does things the way he does. You actually don't have to do any of that in order to know God. It is possible to know him even if you don't have the answers, even if your life is full of doubts and uncertainties. Now, this is true of knowing people in general right? Amber and I have been married for 12 years. We dated for two years before that. So we've known each other deeply for 14 some odd years now. And the truth is, we still surprise each other. I don't know everything there is to know about her, and she doesn't know everything there is to know about me. There's always an element of the unknown in a relationship. I would never stand up and say, I get her. I know everything there is to know about her. And I would hope that she would never do the same to me. You'd never do the same about your husband or your wife or your boyfriend or even your parents. We understand intrinsically that when it comes to relationships, we don't have all the answers. There's always uncertainty. 12 years ago when I proposed to her, I knew she was gonna say yes. I knew it. But I was petrified she was gonna say no. I couldn't be certain. Just this week, I found out that my wife likes peanut M&Ms. For 14 years, I thought she disliked them. For 14 years, I'm thinking in her mind, she's like, man, Dan never shares the peanut M&Ms. He must really like those things. And in my mind, I'm like, well, she doesn't want them. We're still surprising each other in big ways and little ways every single day. Because in relationships, there's never certainty. You're never gonna be able to spell everything out. You're never going to be able to have all of the answers. This is true of you and your kids. You know your children better than anybody on the planet, and they surprise you every single day with the things that they say and they do. You know them as well as it's possible for you to know anyone, and yet you couldn't sum them up with words if you tried. Imagine you did that. Imagine you sat down and you wanted to write down everything there was to know about your son. I don't care which son, pick one, your favorite one. You want to write down everything there is to know about your favorite son. 
And so you start writing and you start with his physical description. You, you say, this is what he looks like. This is how tall he is. This is the color of his hair. This is how much he weighs. This is how he dresses, okay? You write all those things down. Then you make a list of everything he likes and everything he hates. And then you take some time and you write down every single story you can possibly remember about them from the moment they were conceived all the way until today. If you put that together in book form and then you gave it to me, I might know a lot about your son, but that's not the same as knowing your son. There's a huge difference because information can't communicate all there is to know about a person. If I were to read that book, I would know lots and lots of stuff about your kid, but I wouldn't actually know them. Now, here's the thing. If that's true of your relationships with your wife or your husband, if that's true of your relationships with your kids, with your friends, with your coworkers, then why should we expect it to be any different in our relationship with God? The reason some of you guys have never come to know God is because you're still approaching him like he's a subject to be studied and not a person to be known. In your mind, you think if I'm going to know God, I've got to have him figured out. I've got to understand all the variables. I've got to be able to explain away everything about him. Can I just tell you, that's an impossible task from the very get-go. You don't have to fully explain God in order to know him. In the same way that you don't have to fully explain your kids or your wife or your coworkers or anybody else in order to know him. You can have doubts, you can have fears, you can have uncertainties, you can have unanswered questions and you can still know God. Now let me take a quick detour and say to all the believers in the room, please don't drain the mystery out of God. As followers of Jesus, let's not talk like we have God all figured out. Let's not act as though we are experts on all things divine. Because what happens when we act as though we always have the answers, we have God figured out, we communicate to people that that's possible. And because they're not there, they think, well, I can never know God. If I wanted to know God, I'd have to study a really long time like the pastor did. Or I'd have to be super spiritual like that person. And so we want to keep a dose of humility when we're talking about God. We want to talk about his greatness, his majesty, the fact that he is knowable even if he's not fully explainable. Here's what I think. The world around us is not craving certainty. They're craving authenticity. They don't want to know that you have zero doubts. They want to know that you have doubts and you're still able to hold on to your faith amidst those doubts. If you can communicate that, I promise you, you will find people at your job much more interested in what you believe. You'll have conversations with your family members that'll go differently than they've ever gone before because suddenly you're not communicating certainty, you're communicating humility. You're saying, I'm a follower of Jesus and just like the disciples here in John chapter number 14, I don't know what he's doing a lot of the time, but that doesn't mean it's impossible for me to know him. So the disciples are confused. They wanna know God, but they're unsure how to make that happen. And in truth, they're echoing questions that have been asked from the dawn of time all the way through uh, the 21st century today. It's not the questions that are so radically important. It's the answer that Jesus gives them here in these next verses. 
John chapter number 14, we're gonna read verses nine through 11 here. Remember, uh, the disciples have just said, no, we don't know what you're talking about, Jesus. Help us to understand. Then Philip says, if you'll just show us God, then we'll get it. If you could just reveal him, if you could explain him, if you could sum him up for us, Jesus, then that would be enough. And so Jesus responds to, in, uh, to Philip in verse number nine. And he says, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I speak are not my own, but my Father who lives in me does his work through me. Then he says, just believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the works that you have seen me do. Now here's the truth. Jesus claims for himself something here that either makes him a total nut job or it revolutionizes everything. Either what he says has the power to transform our understanding of whether or not it's possible to know God or Jesus is the wackiest guy that ever walked on the planet. Because the truth that Jesus came to reveal was not that he was a holy man or an enlightened man who knew some things about God that he was going to reveal to us. Instead, Jesus claims here and in a whole bunch of other places in the New Testament that he actually is God in the flesh. That's what Jesus claims. Now, that makes him different from every other religious leader that has ever lived, every single one of them. Moses was a regular guy. He was bebopping along in the desert watching some sheep, and he believed that God appeared to him in a vision. Muhammad was an average guy, and he was in a cave, and he believed God appeared to him and spoke to him. Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, he was a normal guy. He was walking around in Illinois, and one day he uh, believed that he found some tablets in the ground that revealed things about God. The Buddha, he was just a regular guy who came to know some, some things about the universe that we live in. All of these other religious leaders said, hey, I'm just a person like you, and I want to tell you about God. But when Jesus comes, and when Jesus does, and when Jesus speaks, he speaks as God, not simply about God. And that is the key. That's why you can know God. Because it's not some man telling you about God. It is actually God revealing himself to us in the person of Jesus. Whew, that's different. Man, it's good. Because now I don't have to learn about God from somebody else. I don't have to listen to these guys who lived hundreds of years ago in a different part of the world and say, what do you guys think about God? You don't have to listen to the preacher on stage. And say, hey, Pastor Dan, with your Bible degrees, what do you think about God? Who cares? I don't want you to look at what I say about God. I want you to go see what Jesus said as God. That's how you know who God is. Because God speaks directly to you through the person of Jesus. That is why Christianity is different. That's why Jesus transformed the world. He didn't transform the world because he came and said a lot of really interesting things about God. He came and said a lot of interesting things as God. And that had the power to transform the course of history. It has the power to transform our lives every single day.
If that was all there is to it, that would be good enough. But it actually goes one step further than that. Because as Jesus comes to earth, he not only reveals to us who God is so that we can know him, but in coming to earth in the person of Jesus, God actually says, I know exactly what you go through on a daily basis. You have pain, you have heartache, you have unrealized expectations, you live a life that's mundane and routine, and you're uncertain of whether or not it's even worth continuing, and God says, I get it. Not I get it in the sense of like, well, I'm God, I know what you're going through, I get it. I'm talking about he comes to earth so that he can take on the pain that each one of us experience so that he can go through the heartache, the loss, the unrealized expectations. In the person of Jesus, he invades our world so that he can say, not just, I know about what you're going through. He can say, I know what you're going through. You feel lonely? Jesus was abandoned by all 12 of these guys the day after this dinner happened. He gets loneliness. You've been hungry in your life. You've gone without. There was a time for 40 days, Jesus didn't eat a single thing. He gets what it's like to go without basic necessities. You feel like people slander you. They gossip about you. They say mean things. That's Jesus' entire life. For three and a half years, the gospels are just records of people talking trash about him. That's all there is in here. He understands exactly what it's like to be misunderstood and even to be disliked and hated by the people around him. You feel like God's left you alone at times. And the Bible tells us that Jesus hung on a cross and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He enters into our world, into the mess that we created, and he takes it upon himself so that it's possible for us to know him and to know that he actually knows each one of us and what we experience. When I invite you to know God, I'm not inviting you to know about him. I'm not inviting you to join a religion. I hope you're not a particularly religious person. I hope you give your heart to Jesus and you stay unreligious. I really do. Because religion is one of the worst things that can happen to a follower of Jesus. Religion says, oh, I can tell you a lot about God. But a relationship with Jesus says, no, I know him and he knows me. It is possible to know him. It's possible to know God, not just about him, but to know him through Jesus Christ, his son. 